Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online researchers. I'm your host, Matt Ashburn, and for once, I've never lost a sock in the clothes dryer. And I'm Jeff Phillips, tech industry veteran and curious to a fault. Today, we are kicking off our series covering the SOC, or Security Operations Centers, as well as Cyber Threat Intelligence. Uh, and to get started, we're joined by Rob Fuller. Rob is the Red Team and Cyber Threat Intelligence Director at a major U.S. airline. Um, Rob has substantial experience in running Red Teams, including going back to his time uh, as a Marine, and he's also a founding member of Nova Hackers and served as a Senior Technical Advisor for the sitcom Silicon Valley. Um, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, let's to get started. Um, can you tell the audience members who may not be familiar with what a red team does? Um, well, you know, define it and what it does. And then also because of your background, does, does, does it function differently at all in a, in the commercial enterprise space versus when you were with in, in the public sector and with government? Sure. So, um, First, I just wanted to say I don't believe you, Matt, on not losing a sock. Um, it, it actually never happened, and if it did, like that would be a Thanos snap moment. So I don't believe you. Um, but from a, uh, a red team point of view, the definition is all over the place, depending on who you ask. So this is my definition of it. Um, so red teaming is essentially, um, and we might get to like what they're supposed to do or what they are doing. Um, but uh, Red Team is essentially um, uh, date, dates back quite a few years. Um, uh, some some things I've read put it back into um, like uh, uh, the Crusades. Even some places talk about it all the way back to uh, or just with military, U.S. military. Um, I can't really find a real good you know set in stone. This is when it came about. But essentially, the idea is. Um, you have a quote-unquote red team that goes up against a quote-unquote blue team. And um, the red team is made up of uh, people from the blue team, traditionally from, you know, history. Like, so a military unit would take a portion of that unit and put them as the bad guys so that they can test to see how well they're trained, right? So you can only train so much. You can, you can get to the point where you feel that you are proficient in something or everyone in your unit would act a certain way, but you never know until you come under fire, right? The famous Mike Tyson quote, every plan um, survives until you get hit. Um, and then 
like so what those red teams are there for is to test those defenses test those reactions so in a cyberspace that's very much the same thing right so um a red team is designed to um go against the blue team in a very collaborative way where they are um talking about their strategies and everything that they're doing and how to improve upon so general sense that is what a red team is designed to do from a um from a vocabulary point of view so you're also i mean the red team is acting at like and again, since we are talking about cybersecurity, it's it's like an external threat actor, if you will, and right. um, trying to test the defenses. Um, so when you say threat actor, um, there's a lot of, and this is where the definition gets muddy a little bit. Um, so a lot of people think that a red team is supposed to simulate um, real threat actors, um, define threat actors. So um, when red teaming came about, right, there was no such thing as a threat actor, right? And then so cyber came along and um and we got you know miter attack and had more definition you know uh mandiant put out things apt 29 and all this stuff where we had actual definitions of threat actors and the definition of red team kind of started getting muddied um where you're supposed to def you know only act like apt 29 57 65 whatever um and when you say threat actor what i mean by that or what i what i hear from that i'm sorry is mm -hmm. um, a threat actor, not APT 25, 5, whatever. Um, but like, you're supposed to act like a bad guy, a criminal, just like they did supposedly in the Crusades or, or you know, military wise. Yeah, essentially play the part of, a, of an adversary and look at the security posture from, from their point of view. Right. A, Interestingly, a, yeah. you also run the, the CTI side of the house as well, right? So uh, right. can you talk a bit about how that differs in the workflow and actually how those two can sometimes work together? Sure. So um, from cyber threat intelligence, what you're, the focus there is um, intelligence uh, analysis, right? You're supposed to take in all of these different pieces um, from, from threat feeds, from news articles to like... Um, and you're supposed to have the knowledge to then apply it to the business impact via cyber or via, you know, uh, strictly business, financial or otherwise. So uh, a cyber threat intel um, team may find out, you know, hey, there's a new restriction on on oil and gas from you know Ukraine, Russia, um, and they're attacking these types of companies that do these types of things for oil and gas and they are using these tactics. So we take, uh, as a cyber threat intel team, we'll take those tactics and then move them into our incident response team and our um, security operations team to find, you know, to identify what can be either found if they've already, you know, attacked us or, mm -hmm. or um, detections can be put in place for those things if they're not already there. Um, so how a, um, and this is actually uh, getting into an exciting piece, um, how I have seen red teams and cyber intel teams work together is um, having um, intelligence teams build out profiles of not of attribution and threat actors, but targets. So one of the things that a red team isn't always perfect at is figuring out what's important to the business. What could 
take a company down? What could, uh, what kind of focus a company needs to have to continue doing business? And an Intel team, one of the things they have to know is what, you know, what affects the business, right? That's their, their job is to kind of know from a cyber point of view or, or bigger, um, what that effect is on the company and how to operate on it. So if they supply that, that targeting um, to the red team, then the red team can then focus and say, okay, high impact. If um, let me just give you an example of uh, something we did in history. Um, so at a previous company I worked at, there was a, a specific individual that had um, 80% of the patents that this company had. Um, and they were, you know, they were a high level engineer. They like a senior fellow engineer, but they weren't a CEO. They weren't an executive. They weren't um, anyone that a traditional criminal threat actor would be on a target list for. But they definitely would, you know, that person leaves or, or gets fired or, or um, uh, gets attacked. A lot of data is going out the window. Um, a lot of, you know, impact of the company for years to come because they would have had all of the research that that company was doing for a very long time. So not even on the radar, um, but you know, so the Intel team put a package together and said, hey, this is this person's you know daily life. This is what they access on a day-to-day basis. This is you know, the, the pieces that they have access to inside the company. And then the red team took that and then developed a, a scenario where they went after that individual um, to then pull, not intentionally pulling apart their life, but like from a cyber point of view, how many ways that a threat actor could go after that? Because that's the real impact on the other side where like um, real criminals and real organizations from depending on the country of origin, um, they have different motives, right? So like China is after intelligent um, intellectual property. So like a, a Chinese threat actor would go after this person. And so um, we, um, when for the red team, essentially did the engagement again around that and put more protections in place for that individual. So they went from being just a standard, like a high level engineer, which didn't really warrant any particular insight from a, um, a an attacker point of view or from a incident response point of view, from a, a you know, a, uh, security operations point of view. And then we added them to the, you know, high, high value targets list, essentially, was what we had, where any, any anomalous action on that person was then detected, just like we had for all the CEOs and executives and all that stuff already. So we started adding people into that, uh, because of this type of engagement. So that's a long winded, sorry, <laughs> that's no. how Intel and Red Team can talk, work together. That, that's, su- that's super interesting. Um, Diving a little deeper into the the threat intel team, um, so you mentioned they have access to all kinds of data, um, different feeds that are, this information coming inbound. Um, do do your analysts ever have to conduct any online research external to the company and about external threats? And I ask that because a lot of our audience, you know, around OSINT and doing online research. And so my question is, if you have to go out uh, as a threat intelligence analyst and engage or or look for information. Are there any best practices or protections that you know you your team looks to follow? Sure. And I'd like to swing this a little bit to the red team side of things, um, because okay. um, so from a red team point of view, 
one of the things that I always really enjoyed was when instant responders would start acting on my things. So I actually wrote a tool called VT Verify that essentially would look for virus total. And as soon as my bad stuff was uploaded to virus total, I would get notified. So I knew when I was burned, right? And so um, from a criminal uh, threat actor point of view, there's a lot of these phishing emails and other things that go on that have very unique IDs for exactly who they sent it to. And if you try and you know expand a URL that has been shortened, um, whatever site that you did that on or whatever you know tool that you use to do that is going to request those additional pages like if it's um, bitly or whatever to that uh, concatenated that string or that that link down um, it's going to request those pages to go and expand it further to find out where it goes to and that means there a request is going to go to the attacker to expand that um, and so me as an attacker, I know when that happens, right? So um, pulling this all back to your question um, is very, very dangerous to research, even on with the most, you know, even if it's Google, um, different pages or different links that an attacker has sent. So uh, from a threat intel point of view, we come at this twofold. Um, we have vendors that are very experienced when doing this. So if there's a super sensitive thing um, that we want researched, we have a, you know, a couple of vendors that are really good at um, you know, hitting the dark web and, and going and, and have um, profiles that are, are well established and, and can dig in and, and sometimes like purchase credentials that are on the dark web for sale and do that for us. Um, where that takes a lot more like backstory and, and history. Um, but other research um, that is less sensitive, and we have playbooks for where that line is, essentially, uh, you can do on websites um, and things like that. So open source intelligence gathering ha is kind of a, a sensitive topic. You have to know when you're tipping your hand versus when you need to go a, a much more sneaky route. And that that is a blurred line that needs some technical knowledge. There really isn't any way to get around that. You brought up an interesting point that I think a lot of people may not normally consider, especially if they're new to CTI or, or SOC, right? Uh, and it's that threat actors or adversaries, whatever term you'd like to use, they know who they're targeting, you know, if it's a, a closely targeted uh, compromise, right? They know who they're sending emails to. They know who they're targeting. And many times they do, in fact, customize those links or those attachments and the subsequent malware for that individual. So I'm thinking of one case, as you were talking about that, where um, a very high profile person within the organization was targeted, received an email with a link. Uh, that person clicked on it, you know, whatever. Nothing happened as far as the, the person could see, but then thought twice about it, right? And so contacted the SOC, did the right thing. Uh, and when he contacted SOC, SOC went, looked at the same link and nothing happened. It was, it was just benign. Uh, everything looked fine. So the SOC in that case said, oh, you should be fine. There's no malware there. Everything's okay. Uh, what that SOC analyst didn't know is that uh, it was a fire once piece of malware. And once that link was, was visited that one time with a fingerprint that looked consistent with a physical machine, not a virtual machine, 
Um, it then deactivated the malware that was attached to the link and then inserted some, some benign content instead. So that's a really important point that you make. And, um, that's a, that's a really key thing for folks to keep in mind, especially if they're on the CTI side of things. I'll, I'll do you one better. Um, we had an engagement where as a red teamer, we sent an email off to, you know, a bunch of executives and a bunch of people as a phishing link. Um, very very rarely do I uh, have I consulted for a company where no one clicks the link. But on this one occasion, no one clicked the link. Everyone forwarded off to their phishing team. Uh, uh, you know, the report of fish kind of button thing that it, a lot of corporations have these days. But the sock clicked it. They opened it up to go research it. And from the exact same host, we got a ton of, of, uh, clicks because it was this one research, one person doing this inside of a VM, which he thought was a safe way of doing it. He loaded up the, the page. Um, and for each person that had reported it, he was clicking to look at what was happening on each one of those hosts. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, um, a, a sandbox. It was just his own VM that he was doing the research on. And we got, access to that VM and he wasn't reverting it every time. And because we're inside of that VM, we didn't do anything on that system, but it, that system was not disconnected from the network because it was on his work machine on the corporate network. So we started expanding from the SOC analysts virtual machine. So it's very, uh, it, it takes a lot to set up a safe environment to do something like that. Yeah, it does. And the need to click things seems to be ingrained in everybody's, uh, uh, you know, everybody's personality for some reason. They really, really want to click things. And I'm thinking back to, um, it's probably like DEF CON like 13 or something back in like 2003. So I'm probably showing my age a bit here. Um, but at the time, phishing emails and that type of thing wasn't a, uh, wasn't a viable attack. It was just, just not heard of back then. Uh, it was more focused on the perimeter getting through the IDS, IPS, or firewall, right? Uh, but this really ooey-gooey inner um, intranet, right, that you can get to with really very few security precautions. So um, there was a security researcher from SensePost, and I remember this because it had a, a big impact on my career, actually. A security researcher from SensePost, and he's like, why are we going after the IDS, the IPS, the firewall? Those things are hard, and that's really tough. Why don't we just go straight to the user and have them click something that will then give us access as they have it, right? And so um, in his presentation, I remember that he was doing a, a red team of a, um, a penetration test of a bank, a very well-known bank uh, that he was hired to, to go and test. And he thought he would try out this fairly novel attack method at the time. Um, and I remember him saying that they disguised this attachment as a screensaver. Um, hey, we're from the bank. You know, check out this new screensaver. It's themed. It's branded, whatever. Um, sounds pretty boring to me, but apparently like one guy, I remember this clicked it like three times trying to download the thing and he just kept installing the malware over and over and over again because he really wanted uh, that free screensaver. So there's some very silly things that, that people will click to view or try to install or access. Um, and I say that because that's almost 20 years ago now, you know, it's about 19 years ago. And those same attack methods are still super successful today. Uh, human nature really hasn't changed very much in that regard. Ooh, you are getting me very close to a soapbox. I don't know if you want to be on. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. 
Step on up, Rob. Uh, so, uh, I don't believe in, in security awareness training. Um, I think that um, it is not it is not their job to be um, to be a security professional. It's like they're a forklift driver. They're, they're you know a finance person. They're an HR representative. I I don't believe that users should know what a phishing email looks like. I don't. I think that we as security professionals need to do a better job at making it so that they can click whatever they want and it won't do anything. I, I agree. And, and my pet peeve, actually, um, I think it's okay to give them training. If, here's some bad things that can happen. But what really rubs me the wrong way is when you try to instruct users to don't click a suspicious link. I see that. I've seen that probably thousands of times in my career, that, that guidance given out by SOX and security professionals, right? Tell your users, don't click a suspicious link. What the heck do they know? What looks suspicious? If it was suspicious, they probably wouldn't click it anyway. Right. So it's, it's really unhelpful advice that many times professionals give folks. Agreed. And as the non-practitioner here, I'll, I'll echo that, that it's not often super helpful to me. <laughs> and that, it's also really, that urge to click. Yeah, it's also really bad to fault them for it too. Like, oh, you click, you know, our test email or our test phishing, you know, security awareness thing. Now you have to go through four hours of, and you know what they're going to do with that, right? Like everyone, everyone on the planet, I think HR is the only people who actually go through their own training and maybe not even then, but everyone's going to click next, next, like us as a red team at a previous company, we found that you could just do a slash certificate at the end of, or, or for our corporate training, and it would just finish the, the training for you. Like no, that's great. No one, no one does corporate training <laughs> the way that it's intended. So why do we expect you know the the security awareness one to be different? Yeah, the punitive response is also one that really um, doesn't sit well with me, right? You know, I've seen and I've seen yeah. all all spectrums throughout my career, but the ones that really stick out as being unhelpful are those where you have a, a CISO or a CIO that that says. Um, well, they, they didn't pass the security training or they didn't pass the, um, the penetration test where they clicked a link that looked pretty convincing, frankly. Um, but that's fine. We're going to punish them by revoking their access to the Internet or revoking access to something or shaming them in some way. Uh, that is really counter, I think, to security interest completely. Absolutely. Um, it's not the way to go. And, and frankly, um, it's probably trying to compensate for, for their own failings when it comes to their security program, right? Because at, to your point, uh, Rob, the, the security should be in the background functioning. Uh, the user should just be able to use things uh, and not have to worry about whether they uh, are using it appropriately or not. Exactly. It's exactly like finance. I, don't, I should not have to worry that finance is going to pay me my paycheck. Yeah. I, should well, I was, I was thinking when you said that, I was thinking an ATM, I was like, yeah, you're right. I, I go to the ATM. I put my card in, I put my pin in and I get money. I don't think about the security behind it because right. I'm just a user of that, of that machine. And it works as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyways, sorry. Soapbox done. <laughs> soapbox, oh, yeah, yeah. Jeff, I'm sure. Sorry. We've taken up some time here uh, with sock stuff. Uh, you know, that's my, that's my thing. So no, it's uh, that's awesome. Um, you know, I did want to, Step back, Rob, in your intro, I, I had mentioned um, you had founded an, uh, a, a group that, called Nova Hackers, and I know you're involved um, when we were talking earlier in another group. So I wanted to ask you about some of those. What is Nova Hackers? Um, what, have you, you know, what have you gotten involved in and, and, and why do you get involved? So um, 
Oh man. Um, so Nova Hacker started in 2009 um, after um, I saw, so DEFCON groups or DEFCON, I think it's called groups. Um, the, the DEFCON groups, they met all over the world. Um, uh, and I went to, I, when I first started getting into InfoSec in, in 2005-ish, um, I wanted to, you know, get involved. I learned about, you know, went to ShmooCon for the first time, um, wanted to get more involved in the community because this felt like home. Like there was, I loved the industry and um, that's past tense. I still love the industry. Um, I really wanted to get involved in my local group. So I went to a DC um, 703, I think it was mm -hmm. a group and they just sat around drinking coffee and there was no like conversation. No, everyone was government employees and they were just unwinding from their day. And I want, went there expecting, Hey, this is going to be like a little conference. I'm going to talk to people and they're going to have stories. I'm going to learn ton. Nope. Every, like there was three meetings that I went to before I got fed up with it. And I was like, these, these guys just, you know, want to unwind, which is cool. Fine. But like, it's not a DEF CON group. Um, at least in my definition. And so um, roll forward to about 2008-ish, um, I start this um, uh, InfoSec luncheon because I wanted friends in my you know industry. Um, and so I say, hey, anyone in the area in Northern Virginia that wants to have lunch, we're gonna go to this um, uh, uh, Chinese restaurant um, and I, set up a, you know, a, a table for it. No one showed up. And it was way out of the way. It was close to me at the Pentagon, but way out of the way for a lot of other people. So I'm like, okay, no one's going to show up to this thing. Um, let's try and move it to somewhere more accessible. So um, the very first like Nova hackers meeting um, was a, at LaFont Plaza in their, in their underground, like um, uh, food court. Oh, that and place is depressing. It, it super is. It super is. I didn't know that at the time, but like I, it was suggested that that is the place. But a good location, though, for, for the crowd, I think. Yeah. Yes. For, yeah. And um, so I had 13, 14 people say they'd come. And I'm like, cool, awesome. I will, I will get there early and I will save space. So I am sitting in the LaFont Plaza at one of the restaurants that we had designed, um, picked out saving like six tables for people. And if you've ever been to LaFont Plaza or any of the restaurants there, there are not that many tables. And so people are looking at me like frustrated. They want their lunch. Um, I'm just sitting there. I sat there for like an hour. No one came. And uh, so I'm like, this is last try, you know, third time's a charm. I'm going to go again. We do this one more time. And um, uh, 13, 14 people say they're going to come. And again, I show up, I save, you know, four tables this time instead of six. And um, one person shows up and, and he's late, but he shows up and that's Chris Gates, Carnal Lineage, um, my co-founder for Nova Hackers. And he's like, where is everybody? I'm like, you're it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after that, um, so what Nova Hackers came out to be after we, you know, started to actually um, have people showing up was essentially a clone of AHA, which is Austin Hackers Association. And what this is, is a group that has a really cool way of doing things, I think. And that is, if you show up, um, you have to present. 
um, and it is a um, it is a collaboration and um, oh, what is the word where you have to keep contributing. It's a, it's essentially a group where you have to keep contributing or you're no longer part of the group. Um, so um, you present. We have a, a six month uh, rotation now. Um, essentially you have within six months you have to give another presentation and it's chatham house rules so anything that uh, is talked about there you, you can use sort of like tlp red you can use it in your day-to-day -day, but you can't say where you came from or, or act on it publicly and um, what's really awesome is that we accept you can you can present on anything at nova hackers we had one person who was just getting into infosec talk about um intro to python which um uh, there are plenty of people that you know that went directly into infosec and didn't do any um, programming so that was really interesting for them um, we had someone talk about hacking their um, coffee machine which was uh, like amazing and making the best brew through a uh, like a comedy uh, like a Frankenstein version of of a coffee machine that connected to the internet so you could have like a before IoT was a big thing, uh, like an IoT device coffee machine that would start up in the morning and push a button and do all this stuff. Um, so Nova Hackers has had a myriad of, um, of um, talks, and it's been a really great experience, and I've loved uh, building it. And we have close to 700 members now, which I'm not the only one showing up anymore, <laughs> which is awesome. <laughs> and... Um, and it's been one of the most rewarding situations and one of the most challenging too, because managing like expectations and um, and relationships of 700 members is really tough. And so we have a lot of um, pretty direct rules that um, basically don't be a butthead. Um, and we, that group has grown to the point where we had our own like mini conference after ShmooCon called ShmooCon Epilogue. Yeah, I know, you know, genius idea on the name, but, um, uh, and it's not really weathered the storm of the, um, of the pandemic very well because it has to be in person. And um, the place that we used to meet at um, is no longer kind of available. So that's that group. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, but it's been a really rewarding and awesome experience to, manage that group run, you know, but also just sit and learn. I, one of, so we meet monthly or did meet monthly. Um, we're still kind of going, but we're figuring it out. Um, monthly, every, um, every second Monday of the month. And I learn every single time I go and there's stuff that is just from the myriad of, of experience. Um, we had one guy drop zero days and he was like 19 years old. He dropped zero days on on um, RSA tokens, like literally sitting there talking about how you could exploit and figure out the number for an RSA token. And we're like, stop talking, go sell this. It's like millions of dollars. You you're 19 years old. I know that you don't understand what you're what you're talking about, but there's literally people in this room that can help you out selling this for multi millions of dollars. And um, yeah, but like. That's the space Nova Hackers operates in from Python intro and, and coffee hacking all the way to RSA zero days. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And a uh, great job on, on getting that up and going and, and keeping at it because it's a, a lot of work, as you said. 
so one final question, I guess, and this is a bit of a fun one, maybe uh, to close on. What was it like consulting on Silicon Valley and you know, any thoughts on representation in TV and media of uh, security researchers? Oh, um, that last bit might take a while, um, but no, the, ignore that then. Fine. You know, how, <laughs> how did you like the experience with Silicon Valley? Yeah. So first off, I was super excited uh, having the opportunity. Uh, my, uh, a friend of a friend of a friend was kind of how I got on the show. Um, and, um, and I was ecstatic just to have the opportunity to do it. And then they sent the contract over and it was like 1200 bucks. And I'm like, what? And it's 1200 bucks for the entire season. I'm like, okay. Um, I guess that means I'm, you know, a, you know, five hours here and there, like a total 10 hours, maybe. Um, it's like one step above uh, working for free for exposure. That's, you know? that's exactly what this was, essentially. Um, but what I didn't realize was that they were going to um, be recording well into the night on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. And they would call up at 3 a.m. And I was expected to answer at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., you know, whatever time. And answer questions from a hacker's point of view, from an infosec point of view. Um, this didn't happen a ton, but my wife didn't like it at all. Um, and I'd, you know, get up at 3 a.m., walk over to my computer, you know, look at the lines that they had for that night. And they'd rewritten or whatever. And I'm like, nope, that doesn't work that um, so that was season two, season three, I got to, um, help build a character. So the hacker character on, um, on season three, I had a heavy hand in, um, about what they act like and who they would like, like their morals and everything The the female, um, uh, uh, girlfriend of Dinesh. Um, and then season four and five didn't really get called at all, which I still got paid for the season, but there was no infosec or hacker stuff. So. Um, that worked, but season six is hands down one of the coolest experiences I ever had. They invited me out to sit in the in the in the writers' room for um, to spell out the entire season and how the show ended. And sitting there with Mike Judge and the rest of the writers, um, I will never forget that experience. And and there is no amount of pay that would have I would exchange for that experience itself. So awesome. overall, awesome experience. Um, it didn't start out very well, but it was it was amazing. I got to go to TV premieres too. I didn't know TV series had premieres, but I got to go to those. Um, one of the cool things is like my seat um, for the very first premiere I got to go to was next to Jason Statham. Dude didn't show up though, but <laughs> like I have a picture of me sitting next to the the marker for his seat. Next to you, got to sit, you get to sit next to his seat at least. So yes, I got to. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciated the conversation as always. Uh, and for those at home, you can always follow him on Twitter at Mubix. That's M-U-B-I-X on Twitter. And you can also read more about him in our show notes. And as always, if you liked what you heard today, you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts, watch episodes on YouTube, and also view transcripts and other episode info on our website. Be sure to follow us on Twitter as well. Needlestack underscore pod is where you'll find us there. We'll be back next week with more on SOC analysis and some other steps you can take in a SOC. And to register, you can visit Authenticate. That's authentic with the number 
com slash needlestack. We'll see you then. Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8, .com.